0: Yeah, on. Two
1: Twins. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Episode 24 of Two Twins in an Album. T, how are you? Splendid. Splendid. Do you think we should do the disturbed version of the show or the tears for fears version of the show today? <laughs> Related to Shout? Yeah, the, the, uh, the rather beloved cover of Shout by one of my favorite metal bands around, which is Disturbed. I it's a cover you and I both love. I think, I think we both have a, a warm spot in our hearts for that particular rendition, right? think all of disturbs you know sort of odes
1: to the 80s i mean i know they did land of confusion and shout and what am i missing they did another they
0: did midlife crisis by faith no more oh yeah
1: oh yeah, yeah. not 80s but that's a that's that's a decent tune mm-hmm. um clearly they have some good taste you know and the fact that they went in the uh tears for fears direction i think shows some appreciation
0: i don't know if you've seen them live but it, it is a it's a spectacle for sure I know you have seen Tears for Fears live, and we'll talk about that too, but uh, let's let's do the Tears for Fears version tonight. Okay, fair enough. You That's know, probably a little tamer. Probably a little bit. A little less chains and whips and things like that, if you will.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, that'd be a whole <laughs> different show.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, welcome to episode 24, and uh, looking forward to tonight's album, T. To it's going to be interesting to get your takes on... The songs that come from a big chair. (laughs)
1: Yeah, this one, this one will be fun.
0: At first glimpse, you might think Tears for Fears is just truly a duo, which I I guess in some ways they are. But tonight we'll look into a little bit more of of the two focal points of Tears for Fears as so marvelously portrayed on the album's cover art, which is something we'll maybe talk a little bit about when we get into the nerdy deets. But you can't have nerdy deets, T, until you go. Round and round. Take it away. See what albums have you been digging of late? Well, um,
1: let's start off with a little Lionel Richie. And uh, I mean, Can't Slow Down is one of the best albums of the 80s. Has some ridiculous tracks. Um, sold
0: sold a few copies just a few
1: yeah sold an obnoxious amount of copies and had some really good album tracks um the only one is probably my favorite lionel song of all time so just a beauty
0: really um the only
1: of all the tracks on can't slow down uh, you choose the only one the only one is just a it's just an awesome song it's just quintessential lionel you know but i mean running with the night's amazing and you know i mean it's It's a hell of an album. And, uh, which led to me watching some clips of the, uh, American music awards where he not only hosted, but won like 12 awards or something. And every time he went on stage, he just kept saying outrageous, (laughs) outrageous, you know, uh, that was like, you know, That was the thing. The second is a great record, a little bit of an unheralded record from a 90s rock band called Luster, L-U-S-T-R-E. And uh, they put out a self-titled record. I think it may be the only thing they put out. I used to know a little bit about this band, but now I've kind of forgotten. But I know that they were like one of those 90s bands that had this like, tight cult following. Everyone's like these guys are going to be huge and this record's really good and just never really panned out. But check it out if you're in the mood for some good sort of mid-90s kind of a little bit post-grunge uh rock from a really cool interesting band. And then the third is uh getting a little bit funky on you here is uh the album The Dude uh by the great uh, Quincy Jones and somewhat inspired by the Quincy documentary that I watched Several weeks ago on the old Netflix or whatever, Hulu, whatever the hell it was on. And a really good documentary. The dude is one of his funkier albums, which opens up, obviously, with uh, I Know Corita, one of his bigger hits. And that is what is round and round for me. What is round and round for you?
0: You know, our episodes always lead me into these little temporary manic obsessions with a band that we get into. So I've been listening to uh, an album called better days coming, which seems to be appropriately named for the pandemic that we're all going through. And that is the most recent album from winger uh, came out in 2014, which T I, it's kind of, you ever have that thing where it's like, Oh, that's their new album. And it's actually like six years old. It's yeah. really good. It, it's, it's, you know, like everything winger did very uh, very musical and, and just incredible work from Kip and rib and, the whole winger crew. So
1: if I remember correctly, that one's kind of really stripped down, you know, sort of not a ton of production and really straightforward bare bones, rock and roll. Uh, if I remember. And then there, the other one they put out, um, karma is coming. Karma. Yeah. Which is very good at that. Has a closing track called witness. That is absolutely incredible. That one got a little bit more lushly, you know, produced kind of like the one that we, uh, talked about on the old podcast here uh, with their, uh, debut.
0: It's a little more rock and roll, a little less prog. In their last three albums, four was very progressive. Karma was, was a more of a rocker with a couple of things splashed in, And yeah, Better Days Coming is, is definitely a little more stripped down, but it's worth checking out for sure. Everything that Winger does really is. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. You brought up a little funk with your Quincy Jones call. I've got, uh, <laughs> I've got a really beloved album called Show Is Funky down here which is by James Brown, but it's James Brown plays and directs the James Brown band. (laughs) So it's instrumental. So in the seventies, when when funk music got like everything else, it became psychedelicized in the uh, early to mid seventies. You know, you listen to some of the temptations work from that era and it's, it's just, you know, fantastic kind of psychedelic funk music. And so James Brown's band, not the original JB's, but, you know, like a newer version of his band at this time, did an all-instrumental funk album that's very psychedelic. And James directed the band, which is kind of hilarious.
1: Does he talk to the band like in his trademark style or do you not hear James at all?
0: I think you get a little bit of the, you know, like some of the trademark James Brown stuff, but no, there's no true vocals on it, but he does play organ on it. And so you get to hear James, you know, kind of pound away at the organ. Did James Brown play the organ? (laughs) I didn't know that. Was he any good? I mean, could he play you know, this album, is it's not like a Chops album from the organ. It's mostly setting kind of moods and things like that. But his guitarist can shred, I can tell you that much. I mean, it's a fascinating album. It's Everyone should check out Show Is Funky down here. And then uh, lastly would be, um, you've mentioned the Beatles a few times, and I have yet to reference the Beatles and Ronder Round. But Abbey Road, I, I, I scored kind of a different vinyl version of it. It's a J- Japanese import that I found and kind of just... Led me to listen to it again, and it's, it's still my favorite Beatles album. And, you know, it's hard to determine which, which is better, the first side or the second side, but they're both amazing, and I just love Abbey Road. So that wraps up round and round for me. Songs from the Big Chair. T, T do you know what the Big Chair is? Did that come uh, up in any of your background research that you did on the album?
1: Uh, Just a... Uh, just a large chair in uh, somebody's
0: <laughs> family room. Like when you were, you know, we both discovered this album when we were kids, right? This was one of those albums that our mom had. And I remember seeing the, her record of it. And I, that, did that title intrigue you? Because it did for me. I mean, I, when I first saw it, I was like, what big chair? And how do songs come from a chair? And, you know, at, at six years old, this was big stuff for me. So I don't know. Did that title fascinate you at all?
1: Yeah, I remember it being a little bit of a unique title, but I don't don't really ever recall uh, dying to know what the big chair uh, is. What is the big chair, Nub?
0: So it's a reference to a film. I forgot what the film was called, but basically it's about somebody with multiple personalities. And this individual only feels safe and only feels her true self when she's sitting in her analyst's big chair. And so it's a reference hmm. to that. So think about somebody who's going to be psychoanalyzed and they sit in this big chair and that actually brings them like the comfort or the ability to feel like themselves. That's the reference of the big chair and the songs from the big chair, I think is just adding to that as the album title. They, it, they certainly saw it, I think, as a way to uh, continue to express themselves because these are artistic dudes now. And as you learn more about our two characters for the evening, Roland Orzabel and Kurt Smith these guys are incredibly thoughtful about everything they do so much so that they go years in between albums. Uh, you know, Tool is kind of our modern day version of a band that like puts so much thought into what they do that they literally can go decades in between albums. That was sort of tears for fears. I mean, they, they were not prolific. They thought about everything. They thought everything through. Certainly this was a band that did not lack thoughtfulness and maybe sometimes to their own detriment.
1: So Tears for Fierce has kind of an interesting thing with me. Whenever I get caught up in a conversation with somebody about music and the inevitable topic of lyrics come up, because everyone always likes to pick on you and me about um, not really being that into lyrics. you know. And I always tend to bring up the artists slash groups that I actually do pay attention to their lyrics because I think that they're either... Very memorable, or very thoughtful, or consistently very good. You know, Noel Gallagher, somebody I pay, pay attention to the lyrics. Uh, the aforementioned Tool, you know, Maynard's lyrics I typically pay attention to and kind of I'm interested in. Phil Collins and Genesis I always felt to be great lyricists, and absolutely Tears for Fears is on that list. I I think they were probably the most intelligent band in the '80s lyrically and in some cases musically some pretty heady stuff in both kind of the pop tunes that they were doing as well as some of the more shall we say artistic tunes that they were doing and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't and we'll kind of go through that I'm sure as we plow through this one but if you dig through their entire catalog really you're going to find moments where whether it was a pop record that had a chance of being a hit Or whether it was something that was a little bit more earthy and sometimes scattered, because this band could definitely be scattered (laughs) at times. It wasn't ever from lack of thoughtfulness. In fact, sometimes I think that came from, you know, being overly thoughtful and overly intelligent and calculated about some of their music.
0: I think those are great points. And with all that said, Tears for Fears to me has one peer. Uh, When you think about the era that they came from and the scene that they came from, I I don't think they're peerless. I think they have a singular peer. And that group is. We'll get to that after we tackle the nerdy deets done dirt cheap.
1: What a great cliffhanger. Good for you, buddy.
0: Thank you. You Songs from the Big Chair was released on February 25th of 1985. So that means that we were five years and 11 days old Mm. when this came out. Just a couple of young pups. A couple of young pups, just like the artists who made it. A couple of young pups. It was recorded uh, really all during 1984 in England. The album duration is 41 minutes and 52 seconds. So again, you're you're thinking of an era here where albums could be shorter, and we'll talk about that. You know, what's the perfect length for an album? And this is certainly on the shorter side when you compare albums that we've covered in the podcast and certainly things that would come out on CD later in the 80s and in the 90s. You know, albums at that point could stretch more than an hour if needed, but this one really clocks in at right around 40 minutes. So very tight, very focused. I think what's really notable about songs from the big chair and had to be somewhat unprecedented and it it would take a little research, but I'd love to know if there's another album that had eight songs on it with six singles. So just think about that. You know, there's eight songs on the album and six were released as singles. That's pretty ridiculous, but it speaks to you know the success of this album. The singles were Mother's Talk, Shout. This is in order, so Shout was not actually the lead single. Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Head Over Heels was released as a single without Broken being attached to it, although a lot of radio stations would play the version with Broken as the tale. A re-recording of I Believe that they called a soulful re-recording, and then a remix of Mother's Talk. That was released in the us the two most visible members of tears for fears as mentioned are roland Orzabal and kurt smith both of them handling a variety of instruments but there are two other members of the band a legit band of four people ian stanley on keyboards a really important part of the album uh, not just in playing but in the composition and manny elias did all of the drums and handled the drum arrangement on the working hour so You know, Roland and Kurt seem to be the guys that got all the photos and they're on the cover and all the notoriety. But there's two other guys that contributed heavily to this album. So the keyboard player did some writing? Absolutely. Yeah. Kurt Smith, as we'll get to, really didn't do a lot of writing. He only co-wrote Head Over Heels. So Ian Stanley handled more co-writing far and away. Than Kurt Smith did, but the dominant songwriter in the group was, and always has been Roland Orzabal.
1: So why did this, uh, this third guy, uh, get sort of the shaft? I mean, why was he not visible? Did, did he not want to be, or was he ugly or? <laughs>
0: right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of what we were touching on early. Like, I don't know if they were late additions to the band. I mean, clearly as Tears for Fears went on, it became just Roland and Kurt legitimately with studio musicians coming in and out and then for the elemental album kurt smith left tears for fears and that was just roland i mean legitimately like it's almost like a solo album right and then kurt came back they got back together in the 2000s and they did the everybody loves a happy ending album and they've toured together since then so i don't know i don't know if it was a marketing decision i I don't know what the deal was but i mean the other two guys they're in the liner notes and they're you know they're heavily featured throughout the album but they're not like considered to be like the duo you know, of mm. Tears for Fears. So th- there's lots of elements of Tears for Fears that feel like they were sort of mismanaged as time went on, and that yeah. might be another clue of it. If there truly was a third member of Tears for Fears on this album, it would be Chris Hughes, the producer, who is a really essential part of the album. He created the album's sound, very big sound, maybe going with the big chair. He does have some writing credits on the album as well. Spe- uh, I think particularly on Everybody Wants to Rule the World. So Chris Hughes, kind of that unsung hero of the band. So was this album successful? Well, it hit number one in multiple countries. Uh, obviously the U.S. It was number two in the U.K. and It also hit number one in the Netherlands, in Germany, and in Canada. And it featured top five placement in a few other countries in the united states in terms of sale it was five times platinum so it sold five million plus copies yeah that's um you know
1: that's that's moving some units that's fine
0: absolutely so earlier we mentioned we were uh just little little young uh munchkins when we first experienced songs from the big chairs i want to hear your wondrous story when it comes to this album so uh t let's get to the wondrous stories kick it off All right. Does your wonder story have something to do with mom's record collection in the blue room or anything like that? Or what do you got?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Is this one of the albums that we, you know, uh, chucked across the room like a Frisbee and found a way to
0: break? Probably got yelled at. I can't confirm or deny that that happened. Actually, I could confirm that that happened. Yeah. We we did that to a few of them.
1: But yeah, actually, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I remember hearing these, I mean, these songs are, you know 80s anthems and shout was just an enormous hit you know it was just on the radio constantly and on TV constantly and that was even before everybody wants to rule the world and I mean you know this is this is certainly an album with some very special very memorable tracks that have lived on and will live on for a long time but my story is a little bit more recent where probably just you know 4 or 5 years ago And uh, we went and saw uh, Hall and Oates and Tears for Fears, and they were actually playing at Joe Louis Arena, which is the old Red Wings arena, and something that uh, you know you and I both have a soft spot for. It's an old beat up, crusty old arena, but just has a ton of character and all that. I miss it
0: so much. I hate the new arena. I miss it so much.
1: Yeah, totally. So we were there to see, uh, and this was Hall and Oates' kind of initial sort of reunion, you know, where they. Decided to get back together and go on tour. And and we got there super early because we absolutely wanted to see Tears for Fears. My wife and I went and, and and they were just incredible. I mean, we were like beaming after the show. It was like, Oh my God, those guys were so good. They sounded amazing. Roland is just so cool on stage. He was funny. You could tell he and Kurt were really enjoying it. They were having a good time. You know, they played all their great songs They played them perfectly, you know, they got done and walked off and we were like, can they come back? Cause like that, I mean, that was just like, we couldn't wait to see them again, play a full show and they've yet to come back, but you know, hopefully someday they will. And then PS, maybe tears for fear was so damn good that it ruined Hall and Oates, you know, as far as, uh kind of bringing us down but there was a very much a differential that night as far as who stole the show so the story that night was certainly uh how mediocre at best tall and oats were and how just absolutely phenomenal uh tears for fears were and really glad that they opened that night and really glad that we got to see them particularly in this arena atmosphere. It was just, it was just very, very cool.
0: I don't think it's a good life decision to have tears for fears open for you. Like that just, that just doesn't (laughs) sound like they should have fired their manager after that one. (laughs) Yeah, I would
1: agree. It's uh, it was, let's just say it was, uh, it was not close. It was kind of like uh, Ohio state playing Michigan. Just, it, it just wasn't really close from the get go. So so good to see them live. It uh, had been a long time coming. And uh, to this day, you know, every time we hear a Tears for Fear song uh, or uh, it gets brought up, we just kind of say, man, how awesome were they? You know, And there aren't a lot of concerts like that where even years later, you know, you just get a big smile on your face because uh, it was such a good performance. What's your uh, wonder story? Nub certainly, uh, I think an interesting pick here. I'm looking forward to talking about it.
0: Well, th- amazingly enough, it mine starts a little bit later too. I mean, the album was part of pop culture when we were kids, right? I mean, the, the you know, it's very memorable piece of music when you think about Shout and everybody wants to rule the world. And the MTV factor was big, but, you know, it, Tears for Fears continued to be uh, a discovery through many years. And part of it was that they were gone. I mean, the band broke up. They, you know, Roland went and did his own thing and, Roland and Kurt had a really bad falling out. Yeah. But the song that really got me into this band is hard to connect to this episode because it's off Elemental and that song is Break It Down Again. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I rediscovered that song in college and I bought the Elemental album and, you know, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was thought it was a good record, and but I didn't realize, like, it, it's sort of half of Tears for Fears and Roland's got such a powerful voice that you, you sort of... You, know, you just hear it. It's like, oh, that's Tears for Fears, but it's missing quite an important part of this pair. So when they got back together, it was and I know we we do a lot of references to when I was reviewing music, but again, it was it was a really good few years. And what what one of the things that happened during those few years was Tears for Fears reunited and did the Everybody Loves a Happy Ending album. And when that album came out, I did an interview with Kurt Smith, and he was such a great interview. What a nice guy very outgoing, great perspective on the band. Everything you talked about earlier with kind of how smart and thoughtful the band is, that was Kurt Smith. I mean, he was just so, he was such a joy to talk to. So the band came to the State Theater in Detroit, played an incredible hour and a half set. And um, afterwards, because we had done the feature story before, I had backstage passes and went back and got to meet Kurt and Roland in person. And Kurt was as delightful as you can imagine. You now he's, he remembered the interview and he, you know, it was complimentary of it, which was like so cool, you know, Roland much different vibe, you know, quieter, clearly meeting people is not his favorite part of the gig, which it, Kurt's a really outgoing guy. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was like a night where it was like, God, everything, everything's back to normal tears for fears is together. And they played this, really outstanding show. I mean, you're right. They are live. You and I have seen a lot of bands. They'd be up there with bands that just how good they sound. Yeah. They're awesome. And so, uh, you know, really good era there. And then they haven't made an album since. And, you know, hard to say why, because everybody loves the happy endings, a a terrific record, but they, um, since they've kind of just done the nostalgia touring thing, you know, it's
1: good call, bring it up, break it down again. I, you know, now that I remember it, I actually had that uh cassette single. Remember cassette singles that would come in the little uh Oh yeah. Yeah. a little cardboard sleeve and uh and they had one song on one side and one on another and I had the Break It Down Again single, which uh go pretty w- pretty far back with that song. And actually, you and I uh when we do our acoustic thing, we we play that song and it's one of those that always gets somebody saying, "What was that one again?" Who was yeah. that? Yeah. It's like, yeah, that was Tears for Fears, early 90s. You know, it was a hit, but a really, really wonderful song. And obviously, you know, one that that Roland pretty much did on his own in that case.
0: Should have been a bigger hit. And part of Tears for Fears' challenge, and we'll get into this, is like, how do you classify them? And that's what I mean when I say they really had one peer. You know, I, I think there's only one group that you can compare them to. Well, we're waiting. Well, that group is... Well, let's first, let's drop the needle. Let's go Uh, go track by track. Let's drop that needle. I don't think it took Roland, Kurt, and Chris Hughes a whole lot of deliberation to figure out how to start songs from the big chair. The rather interesting sound that actually kicks off the first audible part of the album it starts the ever-famous anthem known simply as "Shout." Shout, shout, let it all These are the things I can do without. Come on. Yeah, let's not screw around and let's just go ahead and start right with the chorus, right? yeah on a song like this you
1: kind of i guess want to want to get right to it but uh hell of an
0: opener i think what stands out about shout is some of the intricacies i think about during the verse that uh, melody that comes in that do 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 and they revisit that later in the outro you know and with tears for fears it's really the little things that they did it's those intricacies it's Yes, this has a big sing along chorus that everybody loved. But thinking about the middle section of the song, that breakdown, you know, just think about the do 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 do. I mean, that is, I mean, I I think the song is a little underrated for its completeness. I think everyone just thinks about the chorus, but um, there's some sections of this song that really push the boundaries of what a hit single sounded like in 1985.
1: It's kind of a brilliant song, really, when you think about. About it, and and you're absolutely right. The intricacies that these guys bring to the table, and the layering, you know, that these guys bring to the table, is um is pretty special. And I think that's exactly what makes shot what it is. Is not just the sort of iconic chorus. I mean, this was just a chorus that like we'd be like playing in the playground, and we'd all be just yelling out. You know, I mean, it's it was just it was kind of fun. It was anthemic. But uh, what really makes the song what it is are the various pieces, the various parts, you know, when Roland goes back into you shouldn't have to settle the score, you know, kind of after that keyboard interlude, which is such a cool part, too. I mean, there's just not a section of this song that isn't extremely cool and extremely thoughtful.
0: You know, earlier you touched on the lyric thing, and that's super important. It gives a lot of credibility to you because it takes a lot for lyrics to get your attention. And on Shout, that, the, the section of, and when you've taken down your guard, if I could change your mind, I'd really love to break your heart. I'm like all <laughs> in. I mean, what, how, how do you not? Yeah. You know, it's, it, that's, that's some pretty amazing wordplay there. By that moment in Shout, I mean, again, that song continues to build. And yeah. by the end, I mean, it's, it's massive. You know, yeah. and it, it's, and it's just, you know, it, it, to your point, it, it's, it's a brilliant song and I don't know how anybody could, could say otherwise.
1: Sometimes these, uh, these eighties anthems become what they are because they were just simply memorable or simply silly or that happened a lot from this time period. But this is a song that really truly kind of deserves what it got and, and deserves its legacy
0: which continues
1: today. This is still a song that you hear quite a bit.
0: A song you don't hear quite a bit is how Songs from the Big Chair continues with track two, and that is The Working Hour. How do you enhance a song? You bring in two of the best at their craft to play on it. This song features uh, Jerry Murata on drums, who's you know, one of the best drummers of the 80s, a guy that was in high demand, came in and played in the working hour, and you can hear that groove. It's a significant part of the song. And Mel Collins on saxophone, Mel Collins, of course, of King Crimson. And so... Um, Speaking your language there. Absolutely. I mean, very cool that... Uh, Roland and Kurt and Chris Hughes would bring in such high caliber musicians. Again, we always talk about album sequence. I think The Working Hours is a fitting and smart choice for a track, too. Um, just got a nice groove to it, you know, a very smooth track. What do you think of The Working Hour?
1: It's good. I, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into Tears for Fears album cuts. I mean, which truly were hit or miss. There's very rarely in between when it comes to these guys' as deep cuts. They were either pretty damn good or complete throwaways. I think The Working Hour is one that is really well-placed coming out of Shout to put this in between track one and track three, which they probably knew what both of those songs were going to be. They're too smart a guys not to. So I think it's a nice thing to place there in track two. And for a tears for fears, deep cut,
0: I think the working hour for the most part works. And a lot of emotion in it too. And, and I think that's where they go wrong. And we'll experience a little bit of that on their album cuts. You know, if it feels functional versus something with some feeling in it and yep. the working Hour's got a nice emotion to it. You know, they Roland is singing it with a lot of passion and yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really wise choice for a second song and a nice next step to the album step three is of course arguably the biggest hit on the album I don't know exactly how it panned out but uh, maybe the song that's lasted even longer than shout in some ways and that is everybody wants to rule the world <laughs> It's funny because, like, even saying the song title, I want to say everybody. <laughs> like, it's like the ABCs. Like, if you're not singing the song, you don't yeah. know what the words are. But yeah. it, was, it was like weird just to say everybody wants to rule the world without singing. Like, it's basically a jingle, you know? The choruses. I mean, it's yeah. yeah. This song was used um, in a lot of pop culture, whether it's the intro, the chorus, the verses. You know, the key really is that driving beat and it's that shuffle, dun, 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 you know, which is not a typical beat for a pop well, song.
1: Well, and lest we forget, um, you know, it's usage in Pirates of the Silicon Valley with uh, Anthony Michael Hall as Apple founder Steve Jobs. I mean, great usage in that uh, particular film.
0: Obscure movie. But yeah, uh, Pirates,
1: that's a shout out to uh, Spencer Kreider out in Spain. But uh, yeah, Pirates, buddy.
0: This is a more conventional hit single. You know, and I, I think it's important to note Chris Hughes, this is the song that he co-wrote. So you got a producer co-writing that's always gonna equal commercial appeal because for the most part a producer's job is to be that connection to the band and its, and its audience and in its market. This is sort of hit single written all over it from the guitar intro to the last chorus, um, just screamed hit single. I don't know how the record label didn't just automatically think, hey, we got a number one hit here.
1: So look no further than the previous episode, episode uh, twenty-three on the old podcast here, where we talked about uh, Limp Biscuit, and you were talking about Fred Durst, and you used a, a very, uh, I think, fitting term as to his approach, which was capturing the zeitgeist. That certainly, you know, came to mind for me. Giving everybody, get, and giving everybody, wants to see. I couldn't <laughs> yeah. even do it. I know. I know. Couldn't do it, but. Um, put yourself in the context, you know, uh, and not only is this a beautiful song and one with a really driving beat and a very memorable intro and just some very memorable moments, it perfectly captured the zeitgeist of the mid eighties. Right. And this was an indulgent time period, you know, whether you were in the UK, whether you were in America, um, it was a time of prosperity and a lot of self-indulgence and a lot of uh, getting fat and happy in any way possible. And everybody wants to rule the world is really speaking to that at a time where people in most cases were kind of so caught up in even the pop rock and roll type lifestyle. You know, this was hair metal and this was a time when I think everything was kind of To the extreme, as far as indulgence and self absorption goes. And these guys were kind of intelligent enough to just kind of come out and and spot it and say it. And I think that's part of why this song had the appeal that it did. Now, they probably could have sang whatever the hell they wanted over this. You know, they probably could have said, Everybody wants to eat some food. And uh, it would have been a gigantic hit um, just because it's a. Awesome song, but the fact that they were able to, you know, kind of capture the moment in a pretty timeless way because this is a song to your point that's been used a lot because of just as much its musicality, its content, and it's a very, very intelligent moment for these guys. And yet another song that deserves all of the accolades and all of the legacy that it's earned and really captured
0: some important
1: things musically and some important things lyrically.
0: First of all, I, I think you've maybe tarnished the song because from this point forward, I might just sing. Everybody wants to eat some food, eat some food. You know, I mean, that's important too. That, that captures the moment for me right
1: now, actually, because, you know, I'm kind of (laughs) hungry.
0: One aspect of the song not to overlook great vocal by Kurt Smith. You, not only do these two guys sort of look alike, that's one aspect of the cover art that I always was like, are these guys twins or brothers or like what's going on there? But their voices just complement each other so well, but they're, they're also kind of similar. Yeah. You know, and there's a reason they harmonize really well together, but Kurt's got kind of the softer, more delicate voice and Roland's got that big old howl, but They Their voices just really have a a pretty extraordinary chemistry in the way that they harmonize with each other. Does Kurt sing this entire song? He sings the verses. And then Roland has the choruses? Yeah, they're both kind of singing on the choruses, but Roland's voice is more dominant in the chorus. Yeah,
1: I guess I do remember now that when when you see them live, they're kind of doubling through much of the... um, chorus parts. Yeah,
0: yeah. They sing together in the chorus, but that's all Kurt on the uh verses.
1: And what were the other songs? I mean, just even beyond songs from the big chair. Kurt had a couple um, you know, memorable I think he sang Mad World, didn't he? And a couple others that were kind of well known Tears for Fear songs early on.
0: Yeah, Kurt sings Mad World. He sings um Pale Shelter. Okay. He sings Change. And on Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, he sings um, "Size of Sorrow on Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. Oh, okay. They, one of the keys to the Tears for Freer sound certainly is the, the blending of the vocals. So, All right, T, well, the next track on the album does not really have a title that you have to sing, but catchiness is a huge part of track four, which is Mother's Talk. It's almost like the guys had a hook and like built a song around it, but didn't quite know what to do around it. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Okay. So let's really get into it now. Okay. Let's really get into it here. There's a really interesting thing about this record. You you know, you keep cliffhanging us with, uh, you know, who to compare these guys to. I'm not going to cliffhang on this one. I thought about it, but I'm not going to. I'm going to get right to the point here on mother's talk. This album is so volatile. There are moments of perfection and moments of just what the hell are these guys doing? (laughs) And mother's talk. It's like, what are they doing? I mean, you come off really three songs. If you include the working hour, which I think is fair that are so directional that are so focused and like, what the hell is going on in this song? It is all over the place. It's always fun when we, you know, pick an album, you get to sort through the album tracks and figure them out. And and with some of them, it takes a few. I've listened to this song 10 times and I don't get it. I mean, I don't get the structure. I don't get, there's certainly a hook kind of to your point, but I wish it was catchy. I mean, to me,
0: it's anything but. It's just... Well, just that part. That's what I'm saying. Is I yeah, mean, that one hook. It's sure, got but, a hook, but it's a mess around the sloppy. hook. It's sloppy. It's mess, really yeah. sloppy. And it's just...
1: It's fascinating to go through a record like this where it's so thoughtful and has these moments of just absolute pure perfection. And then you get to really this section of the record, we haven't even got to track five yet, where you just wonder what the hell they were doing. And Mother's Talk is, it's just, it's messy and disorganized, and I, I don't get it.
0: It almost sounds like, a, it's like a Frankie Goes to Hollywood song. You know, it's just, right, it's right. directionless, and it's, it is like, okay, we've got this little bit but we have no clue how to package it. And it really just turns into, you know, it turns into something that's just kind of hard to get through. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And
1: maybe this was kind of a thing, like this was kind of a album cut thing to do, but it's this album kind of frustrates me because, you know, I can't think of another record where you experience actual perfection and then you experience moments that are just kind of confusing. You know, I'm I'm all for something that's a little bit more scattered, a little bit unstructured. I mean, that can be great, but I don't know. I just I don't understand what happens in the middle of this album.
0: There were a variety of B-sides and outtakes that were recorded during these sessions, quite a few. And and like we mentioned earlier, it's a shorter album with only 8 songs. And without question, some of those songs that didn't make the album are of higher quality. There's a song called The Big Chair that didn't make the album. Mm-hmm. Um, Tears for Fears has since, <laughs> they, they've celebrated this album quite a bit with box sets and reissues and multi-disc uh, editions and things like that. And you do get to hear some of those other songs. And it does make you think, you know, why maybe some of those were not included uh, when you hear mothers talk. But yeah, it, it, it's, it really is a song that, uh, that breaks up the pretty amazing start yeah i mean
1: this uh, is a this is like a b-side at best kind of
0: yeah right yeah yeah. or like a club song or something you know i again that frankie goes to hollywood thing you kind of see what they were going for but it just it never got there for sure Mm -hmm. as a song yeah okay here we go i think i'll I'll, this is the moment where i'll reveal (laughs) their peer and that moment is uh, i believe Now, I like this song. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you don't, but let's get into <laughs> the one pure. This song is 100% influenced by the one pure I think Tears for Fears has in the 80s. Are you going to cliffhang again? Because now I'm not. I'm bought, I'm bought in. <laughs> if you cliffhang, I'm leaving. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay. No, go
0: now, this song sounds like it, it, it. Honestly, it sounds like an outtake from an album called "Laughing Stock," and the group is Talk Talk.
1: Mm, yeah. And
0: I think that there's so many similarities between the two. This to me is such a Talk Talk like ripoff. I mean, it really sounds like more like "Color of Spring" and later when Talk Talk really got spacey, and certainly Mark Hollis's famous solo album. Which I think mm-hmm. is just a, a brilliant work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe is going there, and that's why I appreciate it. I think it brings an atmosphere and something to the album that gives it a sense of real minimal, draggy kind of atmosphere. And and again, I think a really strong vocal uh, from Kurt Smith.
1: I know what you just did. I know what you just did. I'm on to you. I mean, we've only how long have we known each other? Forty years? A few years? Yeah. I'm on to you you knew that I was going to destroy this song and you said, how do I get him to just kind of maybe ease up on it? And you, and you brought in talk, talk. (laughs) (laughs) Now now how could I possibly go after I believe right right now when you just basically, and I think very wisely actually paralleled it to talk, talk. So listen, there's some atmosphere here that, and I think the comparison is very good, you know? And, and I think that, there was an element where this type of thing was sort of part of the approach. I guess my problem with it is that talk talk kind of owned it. I mean, it was sort of like, this is what we do. You know, it's, it's, it's atmosphere first. And I think tears for fears wanted to be that. And that's fine. And in, in some cases they probably accomplished it, but this one just drags when, as part of this particular collection, I feel like the album right now is just losing direction and it's starting to feel like, I think what happened often to tears for fears to their detriment, where it's a collection of songs more so than a sort of unified effort. Now the Raul album kind of had a little bit of a concept to it. Um, And I actually think it was really good, a really good piece of work from those guys. But aside from that, you kind of got the feeling That in most cases with their LPs, there was a lot of throwing stuff on the wall, you know, to see what sticks rather than something that's cohesive and directional. So, you know, I don't mind something like this, maybe within another vibe. But again, I just, I think the middle of this album with Mother's Talk and I believe, I mean, man, it's, it's, It's tough to plow through. You, you've helped me think about, I believe a little differently from the standpoint of the Mark Hollis talk, talk atmospheric sort of um, thought. And I think it's, 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 it's valid and a good thing to kind of think about.
0: Well, let me give you one more, one more thing to think about as, as the persuasion continues (laughs) under, I believe it says dedicated to Robert Wyatt. If he's listening. Now Robert Wyatt who I, I don't know if you're familiar with Robert Wyatt but he's a musical hero of many including me. Mm-hmm. He was in Soft Machine and then he went on to have a solo career. He's a a, a genius English musician and one that's very admired. I mean th- there's a BBC documentary about Robert Wyatt that's you know a, a really fantastic portrait of this guy. He had an accident kind of in his early prime as a musician and he's paralyzed. And since he's made music from a wheelchair, he's got an incredible wit. I mean, Robert Wyatt's this, this, this hero in British music. And this song really sounds like a Robert Wyatt tune. I mean, he specializes in dreamy kind of pop music that has some jazz elements. And I mean, so I get what you're saying about its spot in the album, but the fact that they name check Robert Wyatt and this song is such a musical dedication to him is also a big factor in, in why you can appreciate it. And now if you don't know who the hell Robert Wyatt is, I get it. You know, the song just seems like a roadblock, yeah. but um, it is something else to look at. And it's very cool that they dedicated this song to, in particular mid eighties where Robert Wyatt wasn't quite as relevant as he was in the seventies. It, it's a pretty cool thing they did.
1: No, I mean, that's all good context. Um, I don't know still hate it i i i really struggle with the middle of this album just because i mean to me it's just a it's like a u-shape and uh yeah well you see the eight tracks and you hear the first three and it's like oh dear like this is going to be absolutely epic and you know
0: okay well fear not because it gets epic again so here we go. if it's a U shape, I have to believe, and we'll see, but I believe, I believe, pun intended, I believe that you will see <laughs> broken as the beginning of the U going back up. Here we go, broken. kind of starts as an instrumental it's one of the early examples of a tease where it teases the intro to head over heels and that's why this song was packaged with head over heels there's actually a version where it was broken head over heels broken because of what comes out of head over heels afterwards so a cool little tease to the head over heels intro and a a good pounding rhythm here and i think a strong vocal from roland but you know i maybe i'm Barking up a tree that you're not ready to bark. So uh, what do you think of Broken?
1: Kind of like driving disco driving, huh? Something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like it, yeah.
1: Um, Broken's fine. It's um, I don't really understand why it had to be sandwiched around track seven the way it is. I don't really understand why track seven needed it as a dual track and as sort of an outro. I think Broken in and of itself... As a instead of a two and a half minute song and then an outro on the next track, just as a four minute something song would have been good, would have been cool. Certainly would have been a little bit of a get back on track tune. So I again, I'm not, I'm not sure why it was necessary to kind of splice it out this way, but but yeah, it's good. I mean, it's it's cool that the whole build up to it's cool. I would have, I would have liked to see Broken be like a six minute track that sort of took you uh, while steady, took you in kind of a few different directions and led you into track seven and then be done with it. That's know?
0: actually a good take. I, I, I agree. I think there's some untapped potential in where broken was going, particularly uh, with that tease of the intro. So I, I think that's a good call. So, <laughs> and uh, you
1: know, it's just this one. It just, yeah. I wish I could have gone back and been in the room, just been like, guys, you know, just <laughs> focus, just focus. But you know, broken's good.
0: All right, well, <laughs> look you better like this one, track seven, and I'll I'll gush on about this one for as long as you'll let me. Uh, here we go, head over heels. Hard to turn down. I, I, full disclosure: this is one of my favorite songs of all time. It, 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 you know, easily would make my top twenty-five, probably a top twenty, and who knows, it probably would make a, a fifteen or a ten if you really break it down. But I, I'll, I'll gush on uh, in a limited way because I really want to hear your take. Amazing bass work from Kurt Smith. You know, just the bass, if you, just listen to the song and listen to what's going on with the bass guitar and some of the slides he's doing. And right there at the section that you played, well done is always, Maestro is, you know, he's going high on the neck and doing some really melodic stuff. You know, I, I could go on and on and on. Tell me your thoughts on Head Over Heels.
1: It's perfect. It's perfect. I mean, it's the layering, the guitar work, the bass work to your point, the vocal, the sections, the outro. It's perfect. And it drives me absolutely nuts, you know. I mean, this should <laughs> this should be the closer. This should be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They should have had a string section play out the outro and fade out. Um, I, I mean, yeah, it's a wonderful song, and. Uh, I, maybe you can also try and explain to me why it needed broken to be added to it. Um, I would have liked to seen this. The actual song fades out, and a string quartet plays the outro. Yeah, that would have been cool. And yeah. then that fades out, and then the album's over. Um, but
0: well, let's focus for at least a couple minutes on what's there. So you've got you've got some different sections here that do seem to gel together in a pretty special way. So the intro, that melody, that that's certainly something that rings true. And then they do a really nice bookend at the end when that becomes sort of the sing-along bit, right? And you saw them play this live. I mean, that's a, oh, that's yeah. a peak of the live show. Yeah, it was you know? amazing, yeah. And uh, the, the section you played too, I think that the tasteful... Uh, phaser on the drums mm-hmm. I thought was really neat, you know, mm-hmm. and that wasn't all that common in 1985. So some production elements.
1: Kind of takes me back to episode two, Face Value, where we uh, see Phil certainly in, in the air tonight and a few other moments on, on that record where you see some drum effect going. I, I always think of that when I hear that drum lick.
0: Yeah, and a pretty famous drum fill, I would say. That's one of those that you can, oh, yeah. you know, you'd air drum at the show. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, just sort of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, there's just some great uses of dynamics within the song, but all keeping with that sort of steadiness. But is Head Over Heels a love song? Do, do you reckon that it's a you know, sort of a, a sentimental tune or do you think it's hopeful or like... One of the things, one of the reasons I love this song is because I think it's got a lot of different emotional interpretations. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you take from it in particular. Um, hmm, that's a
1: great question. I, you know, and I, and I, again, these guys' lyrics are, are really fun to absorb and assess. I guess I kind of always felt like this was something of a Almost a little bit of playful frustration. Oh shucks! I'm so into this person that I'm like, I'm I'm like, it's almost like a love struck sort of dumb. <laughs> this this uh, this woman or this situation is just made me an idiot. I'm I'm so head over heels. I'm you know becoming kind of a doofus. I I I always felt a little bit of that playful. Um. Where you're just like so into somebody that you're kind of losing your mind in a, not in a weird way, but in a fun way.
0: Yeah, that's a cool interpretation. That's I'll kind like of that. what I
1: always thought. What did you? What have you always thought?
0: I've always thought it as kind of hopeful. I, I, maybe that's just purely the music. You know, i, I the yeah. the emotion of a melody ha- always holds a lot more power to me than any words. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just the way that it builds to the na 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 at the end. Is just. You know, it, it just, it really is, has a great effect, I think. So, you know, I don't buy into any of the lyrical content on this one specifically, it's just melodically, I just think it's, it's about as good as it gets, you know? And it's, it's where Tears for Fear's thoughtfulness turns into a champion song. Whereas, to your point, when it goes awry, it can go pretty south, you know? It bookends the album very well. I mean, I do consider it to be the pinnacle of the album much more than, than uh, the closer listen. The, the only thing I don't like about Head Over Heels is the very ending with the time flies. I just, I, I, I've always thought it was just kind of an odd way to end the song. And there's odd good and odd bad, and I think that goes into more of an odd bad. But when Roland holds the long time flies note with his voice, I, I don't know, I don't really get it yeah
1: I, I mean I didn't always love that part either until they played it live and you got to say it with them yeah and then, yeah and then I loved it you know it's like okay yeah, it's a good yeah. song <laughs> but you know I I think again you could have sang anything over this and it'd be an amazing song yeah. I mean I think I said everybody wants to eat some food I guess this one you could say uh uh, I'll, I'll stick with the whole kind of dining concept. Uh, he could he could be saying, uh, you know, uh, being fed over meals, Man, and uh, that, and it'd be a huge hit. Remix
0: so, album, remix album. Kind of
1: going weird, Al, over here with all the food. Yeah, <laughs> you are. Right? You are. You're. But but no, I mean, y- y- you know, again, I, I think it's it's even better that we can sit here and have kind of a somewhat interesting discussion over the lyrical content uh, because. Even with crappy lyrics, the song would have been amazing. So, just all the better that there's kind of an interesting element to uh, the the whole lyrical assessment. But I mean, it's absolutely incredible song.
0: Another key part of Head Over Heels. It's the one song co-written by Roland and Kurt, and it's mm. Kurt's only songwriting credit on this entire album.
1: Really. Yeah. Really. Well. Hey. That's a wrap. No. I mean, Nubs uh, really enjoyed talking about this album.
0: With <laughs> <it>. <laughs> All right. Let's close up shop on songs for the big chair with "Listen."
1: Wishful thinking on my part.
0: It, it The melody's cool. You know, 45 seconds of the melody as an outro to the album would have been really tasteful. But it just sort of drags on, right?
1: It never stops.
0: <laughs> it's, it's 6 minutes and 48 seconds, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah, whatever.
0: I mean, it's think of like it, it it's like um i think bands were doing this chanty dream academy thing you know it's tapping into something that maybe worked for some clearly this song is incredibly not commercial i mean it's this is not intended to be a single it's one of the songs that was not a single um it's just too long right it just i
1: mean it yeah and it is a cool progression i mean to your point it, it kind of had potential ish i mean i don't know man i don't know <laughs> i'm spe- for episode 24 and i'm finally speechless you're gonna be all right i mean hey this is part of why it's a good pick because um you know it's i don't know i've just never you're
0: speechless you, you are officially <laughs> speechless Honestly. i told you i told it's you i don't
1: i just don't know if there's a more <laughs> volatile album ever it, you know, yeah. one that just—I I don't know—I said it's a U shape earlier. Maybe it's more of a, like a jagged mountain instead.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: The ups and downs are—I are, mean, there are big swings in emotion and quality, and you know, throughout this thing. And I don't know; it's
0: a little bit of. A, <laughs> I can <what>, just—I <laughs> can, I can totally so, picture you like you're you're spending the week listening to the album as you always diligently do but for those who don't know t t is not the most patient listener ever like if you if you don't like something you're going to just quickly find something you like like you, you don't have enough time in your life or patience in your life to sit and listen to something that you don't like,
1: right? I'll, I'll, I'll plow through it, but I, I need a, I need a, a rinse out. Like in other <laughs> yeah.
0: words, if,
1: I, if I'm, I mean, I will plow through an entire song. I will plow through a 30 minute song, you know, if I have to, but I immediately, if it's something that I just, it was tough sledding. I, I kind of in, immediately need to pop in a, you know, one of my top 25s or something like that, just to, just, just to kind of, Rinse a it cleanse, out, a yeah, a little cleanse. bit of a cleansing. So, and I don't know, maybe, maybe that was part of the plan because right when you get to like, you know, head over heels, you're kind of like, all right, I am just confused now. And then you hear that, and it's like, then you're in like,
0: I do you know. think. Well, well, I, that's a great point, and that that leads to some of the analysis that I have of it. So, l- l- let's get into some of our final analysis here, but let's start with does it matter? So, T songs from the big chair. We referenced its success when we talked about the Nerdy Deets. Uh, does this album matter? It does because I mean it, it was pretty
1: unique of its time, not just musically and creatively, and in the uniqueness of the record. You know whether you like certain moments or not, but it was a statement. It was it was a, a group coming out and in, in exploring what going on around them lyrically in a way that was unique and it was musically adventurous and there are songs that are gonna live on forever I mean there there are there are eternal tunes on this record that you just can't ignore and avoid and it is thoughtful and it was different and it you know there's a lot of positive things about songs from the big chair and so many people had it and so many people listened to it and And there could be certain things that are easy to pick on now that of their time weren't as, you know, frustrating as I'm sort of making them seem. But there's no question that this record for this band, which is a great band and an intelligent band and a thoughtful band, that this is sort of their definitive album and it probably should be.
0: How about you? What do you think? I think it matters because of the way it combined, and you touched on this well, it combined the commercial and the creative in a way that by 1985 was pretty unprecedented. We talked about Talk Talk. You know, Talk Talk really achieved the creative. They didn't really achieve the commercial. I mean, they had the big hit with It's My Life, and there were a couple other singles that did okay in the UK, but they never really got the commercial thing right. Right. And that takes nothing away from my, you know, complete and utter love for Talk Talk. Tears for Fears always kept that commercial sense in there. And that's where I give Chris Hughes a lot of credit. Because I think as a producer, he helped them with that. It's a very commercial album when it wants to be. And it's an incredibly creative album when it wants to be. And and so I think it matters because I think that's its legacy. Mm -hmm. Much more than just the, the couple you know, smash singles that it boasts. So, sure. yeah, I think it matters for that reason. All right, T, let's get into the final cut. So, is Songs from the Big Chair on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the dreaded for sale bin? T, where is it for you?
1: So, uh, if I may digress for a second, one of my favorite um, movies ever, and probably many others, is A League of Their Own. And one of my favorite parts of the movie, because, I mean, what it's like name your favorite Jimmy Dugan part, right?
0: Yeah, it's all Dugan.
1: It's total Dugan. I mean, there's some other great stuff, but, you know, it's Dugan. Dugan steers the ship. He, He wins the movie, certainly. But one of my favorite parts is toward the end, and, you know, Dugan's been coaching this team for the whole season, and earlier in the movie, he completely rips... Uh, Betty Spaghetti's ass for missing the cutoff, man, and she starts crying, and it's the no crying in baseball. It's a you know classic scene. So toward the end of the movie, they're playing in the, uh, I think it's the championship or in the playoffs or whatever against Racine, with Kit Keller on the mound, and Betty Spaghetti misses the cutoff, and Dugan brings her in, and and he's he's so <laughs> mad, yeah. But he's trying, he, he's learned from his earlier manage, managing style and he's trying with all his might to be patient and, and sort of mentoring to Betty Spaghetti and, and it's taking everything he has to the point where he's shaking. And he's, he's saying, you're still, and he's got the, you know, he's got the big chew in his mouth. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, so, it's a it's, great scene. Such great Tom Hanks. And he's just like, you're still missing. The cutoff, something, something. I want you to work on <laughs> for next year, and then she says, "Okay," and she kind of smiles because you know everyone's learned something, and she walks away, and Dugan's just standing there shaking for like an extra five <laughs> seconds by himself. It's great,
0: and those who cannot see you doing, you're <laughs> nailing the impression. Well, thanks. it's
1: a little bit of how I feel about this record because I, you know I've got Betty Spaghetti in front of me. This, you know, this this rather uh, attractive athlete. Who, you know, is is a shiny good player, you know, and but you you kind of half want to be nice and coddle it because you because you kind of love it and you certainly love so many moments of it, but you half want to strangle it and you're kind of you kind of get the Dugan shake. I'm a little bit like that with songs of the big chair where it's like, I love you, but I also want to strangle you, you know, because. <laughs> Because this just could have been and not to say that every track needs to be uh, shout or head over heels or everybody wants or the real world that's, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying it, it, it's just the moments where it gets off track, I feel like it gets really off track, but it has moments of true perfection so I, so it's going to be collecting dust for me because I mean you't you can't put it in the first sale bin there's just too many brilliant um pop rock moments on it to do so. But man, it, it's just the idea that you're gonna regularly spin the record with moments that pull you down quite a bit, particularly in the middle, that's just a tough sell um for me. So I'm going collecting dust and I I love this band. Seeing them live was it's one of the better Concerts I've been to in 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 many many years, and they were an opening act. So it just shows you how great they are. There are just I think too many "What were you thinking?" moments on here, um, for it to be any higher for that in my final cut. So that's where it's at. What do you got, Nub?
0: What I got right now is is uh, I'm blown away by the fact that Betty Spaghetti made it into the podcast. So first yeah, of all, well, I, just, yeah. I just want to say that I think that was an incredible metaphor for, uh, for where you were going with your analysis. So I appreciate that. (laughs) I, I have songs from the big chair in the collection because with all of its faults, I still find it to be an incredibly compelling album. Those faults do keep it from the turntable because, you know, I'm not, I'm not throwing it on and listening to, uh, listen regularly, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not, it's not like, Oh, I can't wait to get to mother's talk or, um, you know, I believe or things like that. However, I don't, I don't think the misses are quite as harmful as you might think to the overall picture of the album. And like I said, I still find it to be a very intriguing, very compelling listen that really does demand your attention and it's commercial peaks are, are such, I mean, these songs were to your point, huge hits. And it's got one of my favorite songs of all time on it, Head Over Heels. So, you know, there you go. Um, So strong in the collection, but no more no less, you know. And uh, unfortunately, I can't find a a movie to tie into my uh, analysis of that. So I'll just allow you (laughs) to do that with your Betty Spaghetti Jimmy Dugan call. What I can do right now, though, is wrap up episode 24 by allowing us to uh, talk a little bit about what is in your head. In honor of the album Closer, should we have Dolores go on for six minutes and 38 seconds? <laughs> yeah. just, to, just to kind of show what it's all about. All right, T, what is, uh, what is ringing in your head? All right, the first thing I've got is an Elvis
1: Presley track, and this is off of his uh, Moody Blue record, good record of his. Is that Fat Elvis or Skinny Elvis? Uh, this is getting a little later. This is definitely okay. pork. He's starting to pork out at this okay, point. Okay, good, all right. um, But this track is called Way Down. has a little kind of you know, kind of funky, uh, fun sort of element to it. Um, and some kind of classic Elvis hooks remind you a little bit of uh little less conversation or suspicious minds. It's kind of in that same realm, but way down great Elvis tune. Uh, the second, you know, you brought up uh tooth and nail records with plank Eye last episode on uh, the old podcast here in, in your, in your head. And it reminded me of maybe going back and, revisiting a, a tooth and nail band uh, that we've talked about quite a few times on here, which is Starflyer 59. And one of my favorite tracks by those guys off the gold record is dual overhead cam. Yes.
0: Which is just yes. a
1: blazer. You know, it's just awesome. monster
0: live. So, that song was a killer.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Ridiculous. And then the third, actually, we, we also talked about uh, Lenny Kravitz, I think maybe two episodes ago. And, uh, went back and listened to the five album, which is decent. You know, it's, uh, it got a little bit more electronica and and a little bit more kind of creative and, and sort of away from just pure guitar driven stuff by Lenny. And there's a song called black Velveteen, which, uh, I I think is great. It's almost uh, like a sort of techno song, but, uh, I think it's really good stuff. Uh, from Lenny he he does um I gotta say he does drop the be careful with the language here because he does drop the c note in that song which is you know you don't you don't hear that a lot really um, yeah you know, it's pretty blatant it's like right during the chorus I, I actually I heard it and I was like wow it's like is he dropping the C bomb? Like, and, and I went back and I looked up the lyrics online. I was like, Oh my goodness, he is, you know, you mean like uh, the C yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, going all the way with it. But, uh, but it's a cool track. Um, you know, C note aside. Um, so that is what is in my head. What is in your head, buddy?
0: I'm still kind of imagining that <laughs> I'm picturing Lenny right now, dropping the, uh, Wow, that's. Did you ever see the clip where
1: he uh, he he was playing the guitar and he sort of squatted down to to see the crowd and his leather (laughs) pants ripped and his uh, rather impressive uh,
0: manhood was out? Did you did you by any chance see that clip? I I happen to see that every time you call me. That is my. uh, That's what pops up on my phone when you call me. (laughs) It does.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. I wouldn't know why. Because <laughs> it's hilarious. Couldn't, couldn't be any more different than any, anything that would remind you of yeah, me. Yeah, that's kind of why it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, inspired by last week's ICP, epi- I mean, Limp Biscuit episode, I got into <laughs> far and away the best ICP song, which is Pass Me By. Yeah. Off yeah. The Great Malenko. The closer, tr- right? the closer yeah a truly great song you talk about like dolly willy rule. i mean icps pass me by is i mean it's, it's tremendous so i've been given that a few spins just inspired by our show last week uh song by nine inch nails off the fragile the day the world went away which actually was the lead single off the fragile if you can believe it and uh a very very non-mainstream sounding song from nine inch nails around 1999 but I think the fact that it was the lead single has always stood out. And it's a song that grew on me a little bit. And at this point, I just I, I think it's just you know kind of a mind-blowing song. The outro where the electric guitar comes in, it's just so creative. And off an album that, who knows, maybe we'll look at that album one day. It'll be a four-hour show, but maybe we'll look at The Fragile. <laughs> and then lastly is a, a song from a, a band that it's certainly I don't think we'll do any albums for, but they had a few good songs in the uh, late nineties, early two thousands. And that's super drag with uh, do the vampire, which is a song off the, great uh, head trip and every key album. Yeah. Love
1: that band. Love that. But that's off. That's off head trip and every key. Yeah. 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 yeah regretfully yours, obviously was kind of their most popular album. They had one called last call for vitriol. That was really good. I, they're, they're a, they're a great band. Love those guys.
0: Some great, some great individual songs for sure. Actually. So, I'm, so <laughs> I guess going, uh,
1: going along with the Lenny Kravitz thing that we just noted. Do you remember seeing them at, I think it was like a horde fest or something, maybe? No, it and, was a, that-
0: and- it was an 89X fest. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Oh, the Verve, with the Verve pipe headline, yes, right? Yeah. Yes. And do you remember they were playing a daytime set and the
1: drummer got up at the end of the show and kind of, you know, I think he threw a drumstick out and ran off the stage
0: and he was completely butt naked. Completely. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah. I do. Absolutely. Yeah, like, like in all his glory, like full frontal, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Great. Yeah, you got up from the drums and you saw everything. It was it was always great. They were really good live too. That that, that yes. was
1: you know their catalog was still pretty thin at that point. I think they had maybe regretfully yours and maybe one other record out at that time. But they were they were really good live. They sure were. Yeah,
0: they were they're just kind of an overlooked band. But I think that's because they never they never really created a great album. I mean, they just had some individual songs that were good. Which do the vampire certainly is. Check it out. It's a catchy riff and definitely worth the time. Yeah, good call. i tell you what else was worth the time was diving into songs from the big chair. Are you going to go sit in a big chair right now, T? I think I'm
1: going to go sit in a big chair and contemplate why track four and track five of this <laughs> album were necessary. <laughs> yeah.
0: And track eight. Don't forget track eight. Oh, yeah, and track eight, too, yeah. I appreciate your take on it. It was certainly uh, an album that did not lack interest diving into it head to toe, and uh, it's good to hear your thoughts on it, man.
1: Well, nice pick. Uh, Very interesting album, certainly, and and I think we can all agree a really, really good band. So, well, I tell you,
0: and I'll tell you one thing we'll agree on is next uh, week we will hit a milestone here with two twins in an album with episode twenty-five. You and you and I have had something uh, in the plans, maybe the one element of planning we've done for for the podcast, (laughs) Uh, kind of a special uh, edition for episode twenty-five and. We'll look forward to bringing that to you with undoubtedly one of our favorite albums of all time. And maybe if you combined our two rankings, I, in fact, I would almost guarantee it would be our combined favorite album in the history of albums. And so we look forward to that for episode 25. Sure do. Until then, enjoy the previous 24 and uh, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you for episode cinco. Here on Two Twins and an album. See ya. Two Twins and an album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then,
1: take it easy.